Well, good morning. If you're joining us online or in person, welcome to Mercy Road Worship Service and welcome to week two in our sermon series on the book of Job in the Old Testament we're calling When God Disappears. Now, what's interesting to me is uh, I write these messages with a friend of mine in California who pastors a church in Orange County, and we plan one year out in advance what we're going to preach on. And if you were to basically customize a sermon series for this COVID-19 coronavirus anxiety and, and situation, it would be on the book of Job and something like the title, When God Disappears. And so I'm just moved to a sense of awe and greater trust as I see how God just kind of lines certain things up. And however you come to this message, I just pray that God would would send his peace to wash over you and that you would feel a real practical comfort from the word of God today. We're looking at Job, and if you're not familiar with the story of Job, it's a very ancient story about a man who experienced a great amount of suffering, and yet he's a really good man and he didn't deserve it. You know, sometimes in life we experience pain and suffering because really we do foolish things or rebellious things. You know, if you go rob a liquor store and you get put in prison for that, that's kind of a you problem, not really God's problem, that you did something, and so now you're experiencing a little bit of pain and suffering as a result of that. That's consequential. Job is interesting because at the beginning of the book of Job, we're told that this man is upright. He constantly turns away from evil towards a greater dependency on God. He's a holy person. He's not perfect, but he loves God with everything he has. He's a model follower of God. And then we're given this cosmic courtroom scene in the beginning of Job where, where Yahweh, God, sits on his throne and he has these spiritual beings around him and we're introduced to a person who would later become known as the Satan, Satan, the adversary. And, and we're given this ancient poetic image of this guy who is always kind of telling the king what he doesn't want to hear, the adversary. And he's been roaming around looking at the condition of the human race, and God from his throne says, have you noticed my servant Job? Here's a guy you can count on. Here's a guy who does the right thing for the right reasons. Here's a guy who loves me. And Satan, the adversary, the accuser says, he doesn't love you for, for you. He's into your stuff. Get real. If you were to take his stuff, his blessings, his protection, those perks, those you know, 500 donkeys and the 10 great kids you gave him and all the wealth and all the prestige and the great reputation, you take away any or all of that, he will curse you to your face, God. And interestingly enough, we read in Job that God actually allows this odd social experiment. And so from that, by way of review, if you, you weren't here for week one, we said that God does not delight in suffering, but he does allow and yet limit a certain amount of it. For some mysterious purpose, there is an allowance for it. There's suffering in this world, and theologians would say, we've contributed to that, and it wouldn't take a social scientist to agree with that. Um, we certainly all have played a part in that, but, but there is a type of suffering that is mysterious, and Job is an example of that, because Job didn't deserve to go through the suffering he endured. And so God allows Satan to mess with Job. And if you read the end of the book, Job proves Satan wrong. He actually comes out on the other side with a greater sense of trust and love just for who God is. 
and God restores what is lost. And from our modern sensibility, it reads kind of strange. You know, his kids die and all this stuff is taken away from him. Uh, his health is messed with. But Job provides a template for us to learn how to navigate what we would call mysterious suffering. Some of us would say that's exactly what's going on right now with the coronavirus and COVID-19. It's a mysterious sense of suffering. There's no real sense that we caused it. You didn't do something wrong and God's punishing you. That's not what's going on here. And yet we're all influenced by it. It's a global pandemic to some extent. We will see how it plays out. And yet maybe there's something else in your life that you're suffering through. And if you're honest with yourself, that's not a you thing. You didn't do something, and this isn't an equal and opposite reaction that's happening. It's the result of something else. And when we experience mysterious suffering, we need tools. We said last week, mattress handles. Have you ever carried a mattress upstairs in an apartment building and it didn't have those little handles? Very difficult to do. So theologically speaking, in this series, we're looking at these mattress handles. We're saying, we will all experience times when it feels as if God disappears, because that's what it felt like to Job. We're going to jump right in and ask the question today, how do we suffer well? How do we suffer well? How, how to suffer well? That is the question. If you're taking notes, we're going to start in Job chapter 2, 8 through 10. And actually, right before that, we'll, uh, we'll start at 121. So Job 121. What has just happened is Job's children have died in a terrible accident. All of his financial wealth has been wiped out in a second. And he is reeling from this. And he is wondering, what in the world do I do? How do I respond to that level of mysterious, acute suffering? And Job 121 has this to say. And Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This is a controversial scripture in some theological circles, because a lot of people will say, you can't say God takes things away. He's not mean, but clearly the book of Job, if nothing else, says that God allows a certain amount of suffering to happen to people who don't necessarily deserve that type of suffering for some mysterious purpose. And so that's all Job is saying. The same God who gives all these blessings, doesn't he have the right to withhold them if he has a purpose behind it, if some good can come out of that? Even though he didn't come up with the evil, he will use that towards a redemptive being. But what I'd like us to see is Job's first response is a posture of worship and worship is vulnerability. Naked I came from my mother's womb. We all arrived on planet Earth in our birthday suit, right? No exceptions that I'm aware of, right? That's a very vulnerable feeling. You come out of a very warm, controlled environment, and now, you know, that's why babies cry. Where am I? It's cold. Who slapped me in the butt, right? This is crazy. And, and then we enter into this life, and God is good to us, and he gives us these key relationships and blessings and things like that. And Job, in the midst of his suffering, he starts with the foundation of worship. He says, hey, I came in pretty vulnerable, and death seems pretty vulnerable to me too, because no one's seen the other side of that completely. We, we have belief and faith about what that looks like, but that's a little scary. So, so who am I to call all the shots? Who am I? Worship could be described in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for worship is reverence, respect, trust. 
humility, standing in awe of someone who is much more powerful and better than you, praise, and yes, vulnerability, as we said. Why would Job respond with worship right away to that level of suffering? I think for a lot of modern folks, any of us who have been trained in psychology, we would say, ooh, this is verging on the, the, the point of denial. You know, you, you experience this great loss, and your first instinct is to say, hey, I came in vulnerable. I'm going to go out vulnerable. None of this stuff is ultimately mine, so I'm going to start by praising God before anything else. And, and we almost want to say, are you sure that's how you want to start? But that's how he starts indeed. In fact, he goes on. Uh, let me read uh, 2, verse 8. This is fascinating. It gets so bad, now he's got his health taken away from him. He has all these sores and he is reduced to scraping his sores with pottery. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it and sat among the ashes, so not a great day. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, that's a strong suggestion, wife. He replied, you are talking like a foolish person. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin. You see, there's a sense of worship in that, even when it's really hard to worship. Now, it's not just his kids and his stuff and his bank account. Now, it's his physical health. Some of us relate to that. And the temptation is just to, to get mad at God. We said last week that two wrong answers to the question of why is this happening? One is the moralist argument. Well, everything must be a result of my behavior, where we constantly just assume if it's bad, I must deserve it. And that's really not, not true all the time. And Job proves it's not true all the time. He's a good man who didn't deserve this, and God allowed it anyways. That's moralism. And then we have cynicism, on the other hand, where, where we say, you know, there is, there is no God, or if there is a God, he's not good, or he's not good at his job, or he doesn't care about me. And so we get really jaded, and we believe in things like chaos theory and just who knows what will happen, and we, we just get very detached, and hey, if it happens, it happens, whatever, whatever. And Job doesn't fall into the moralist trap, and he doesn't fall into the cynical trap. He just says, you know, I'm not going to curse God and die. I'm going to worship God for as long as I'm allowed to to live, even if my life is literally sitting on a garbage heap, scratching my sores with broken pieces of pottery. This is incredible stuff, but he doesn't just end there. So it's like he lays a foundation of worship. It's like he admits to himself, you're God and I'm not. You're in a perspective to see the whole picture. I certainly am not. You're not swayed by hurts and habits and hang-ups and weird biochemistry and the way I was raised. You're objective. I'm subjective. You're big. I'm small. You're good, I'm good sometimes. And so I'm going to trust you. And, and out of that, even though it's almost like intentional forcing, I'm going to worship you. I'm just going to revere and respect you and start there and then. I'm not going to end there. Secondly, what does he do? How do, you, how do you suffer well, according to Job? Well, you worship, but then you respond to this mysterious kind of suffering with honesty. What is Honesty. We're better at this as Americans, right? Yelp. We're, we're, we're honest when, when things aren't great. The service isn't great. 
Well, it's outrage. It's admitting that we're anxious. It's emotional request. God, would you please do this? Would you? It's anger. How dare you? God, I don't deserve this. It's a deep sense of sadness. It's taking offense. It can look like depression and deep disappointment, and for some of us, even a sense of despair. I was uh, building a, not building, it, it was a Rubbermaid shed. Anybody have a Rubbermaid shed in their backyard? I got it off Craigslist, so I had to go take it apart at some guy's house, put it in my vehicle, and bring it back to my house. And by, that whole ordeal just tired me out. This is about seven years ago. And so I knew the right thing to do was to put, like, some Class 5 down where I was going to put the shed, some gravel, like a good base foundation. But I was tired, and I didn't need to do that, right? And so, so what I did is I just put the shed together on what looked to me a fairly sturdy part of my yard. Now it's been seven years. Whenever it gets wet, I can't open the doors of my shed, right? Because it's not on a foundation. And so what, I'm, what am I going to do this summer? COVID-19 or not, I'm going to take everything out of my shed. I'm going to maybe have to take the whole thing apart, put it back over here, Go buy class five, lay it down, pat it down, redo the shed, put everything in the shed. It's going to be a hassle. Why do I tell you my landscaping woes? Because Job has keyed on to a spiritual principle that, that we see at, at play in the physical world all around us. If you don't lay a class five foundation, a gravel sturdy base of worship as your first response to suffering, it will not bear the weight of your honest emotions. Eventually, the doors will no longer open. Eventually, the weight, the distributed unequal weight that's in the shed of your emotional life, it's just not going to work very well. So Job lays the foundation of worship, but then he lets God have it. Job chapter 7, verse 11, 711, easy to remember. Therefore, I will not keep silent. This is Job talking to God. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea? Or the monster of the deep? What's going on there? In the ancient world, people were terrified of the sea, certainly of things like blue whales or anything that they ever got a glimpse of, like a killer whale, these sea monsters. They had a name for it, Leviathan. And, and they assumed that they just needed to be kept at bay. They're the the agents of chaos. And he's saying, what, am I an agent of chaos? That I need to be hemmed in with all this suffering? Am I like the, the, the waves of the sea that need to be hemmed in with land? Am I like a sea monster that needs to be beaten back into the ocean? God, that you put me under guard? And then he goes on and he gets even more real. He's getting very honest. Now, this is the guy who just said, hey, naked I came into the world, naked I'm going to depart. Let, I praise God. Whatever happens, I'm going to praise you through it. And his wife said, oh, why don't you curse God and die? And he said, nope, I'm not going to. I'm going to take the good stuff he gives me and the bad stuff he allows. I'm going to trust him anyways. And then he switches, and he starts to put some real honest stuff in the shed after he laid that foundation. And he said, you know what, God? <laughs> it's not even as bad as you treating me like a sea monster. When I think my bed will comfort me, and my couch will ease my com complaint, as in when I can just escape through sleep. Even then, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death. The Hebrew here has uh, the connotation or the euphemism of strangling in your sheets. <laughs> Rather than the body of mine, I despise my life. I would not live forever. 
Job is probably dealing with what we would label PTSD at this point. He's suffered to the point where he is traumatically unable to even sleep. Anybody been through that? Job didn't deserve to go through that, and that's what he's going through, and he's being that honest with God, and he says something that a lot of us, I think, can relate to, whether we're in this current climate of coronavirus or it's another issue in your life. It's this gut-level honest admission that says, God, my life is so painful right now, I kind of wish I wasn't alive. This is the model of an upright, godly person who is actively admitting that he has real suicidal ideation to a living God. That should tell us something. If you ever get to the point where you would rather not be alive, the first person you need to tell is God after you have laid a foundation of worship. And that doesn't mean you're sinner, that there's something deeply wrong with you, that means you are honest enough to tell the one who understands you the most first. And that's what Job does. Talk about honesty. But Job doesn't just end there. He goes on. And so we look at Job chapter 10, verse 2 through 7. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, God, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a strong man that you must search out all my faults and probe my sin, though you know that I am not guilty, that no one can rescue me from your hand, though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue you me from your hand. Anytime they repeat like that in Hebrew, it's, they don't have exclamation marks. It's called parallelism. It's emphatic. They're saying he really feels this. Do you hear what Job's saying? Do you see what he's saying? He is actually saying to God, this isn't fair, God. It's not fair. I didn't do anything to deserve this level of suffering. Some of you have had moments in your life, some of us, I'll include myself, where this is exactly how we felt, but we never were that honest with God. That kind of came out sideways. We told other people, you know, maybe a best friend or a counselor, but we, we, we didn't dare say it to God. But that's really what Job is saying we have license to, to do. Job says, look, what a, you're treating me like a sea monster. <laughs> Like, I need to be, like, hemmed in. I don't know what this treatment is for. It's like you've disappeared, and now I, you're just throwing lightning bolts at me. What's up, God? And, and now I can't even escape and sleep. I'm having nightmares about it, and I wish I wasn't even alive, but I'm not going to take my own life because I know that's not mine to take. And yet, let's keep going, God. This isn't fair, and it hurts. And how dare you? And I'm offended. And, and furthermore, and this might be Job's most honest objection, you don't get me, God. You don't know what it's like to be a, a human being. We're frail. We're limited. We're finite. We have temptations. And it's hard. You're God. Nothing is too hard for you. You don't have temptations. You don't get it. 
kind of reminds you of a teenager. Mom, you don't get me. Well, I was 13 once too, but that was like 100 years ago. You didn't have a smartphone and TikTok. That's kind of what, what he's saying, right? There's a real whine in that tone, and yet it's honest, and yet God does not smite him for that or say, how dare you? Now, he will later on have a reckoning with Job where he, he gets pretty real, and he says, hey, Job, do you, do you think the horse is cool? Where were you when I made the horse? Like, just have a little humility and, and listen to me. And that actually deepens Job's dependency and love for God. But we're not there yet. God is letting him vent. Is it possible that in this season of your life, God might be asking you to vent to him? To really get real. To let him have it. To say, God, you know, I've served you and I've loved you and it just doesn't seem fair. The shoe doesn't seem to fit. Why did I have to go through that? Why do I have to go through this now? Why me? Why her? Why this? Why not me? What about that? Job is presented as the best of us. But he is pictured also as the rest of us. He's, he's a picture of who we all are, not in our uprightness, but in our ability and our license to be that real with God as long as we lay the foundation of worship before it. And it's a rhythm. It's worship, God. I trust you. I respect you. I revere you. And another thing, this isn't fair. And I've got nightmares. And it hurts. And where are you? Because it feels like you've disappeared. Then we go to Job 30. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly, with the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death in the place appointed for all the living. What's fascinating about this is Job will go on to switch posture back into worship and basically contradict what he's saying and say, and yet I know you've got me and you hold me in the palm of your hand and all that. And two things like that cannot be true at the same time. God can't be against you and bring you down to death and totally abandon you and not listening to you, but also in your corner and holding you. I mean, which is it, Job? And what are we to take from that? I think God allows us to be honest, not because in our honesty we're going to always say true things about how God works and how we work in relationship to God, but because in our honesty we're going to say true things about how we feel. And God cares about how you feel. Did you know that? He cares about how I feel. And sometimes, have you noticed, how we feel doesn't always line up with the facts of the situation. Facts are not always feelings. And, and a lot of us agree with that. We say, yeah, facts aren't feelings, so never show your emotions and don't admit how you feel. That's not going to work for you. God says, no, no, no. Start with the reverence and the respect and the worship. Lay that foundation and then bring all your feelings to me. Job, does it feel like I'm against you? You tell me that. Does it feel like I can't understand you because I'm not human? Let me have it. Job, does it feel like I'm not listening? I'm against you and I'm not going to be there for you? Speak it out loud. Have you ever spoken a feeling a premonition, an assumption out loud. And it's like the minute it was airborne, you're like, well, that's kind of foolish. Honestly, even though I really feel that, 
I don't really believe that's true. When I went through therapy at the VA for some of the things I saw in Iraq, we had this weird little exercise I would do with my counselor where he would make me write out a statement, kind of a stuck point, he called it, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then I would say, this is how I feel, and da-da-da-da. And then he said, now tell me what percentage you believe that is true. What do you mean? Like 20%? Or do you, is it more of like an 80%? You, you feel that 80% is true. And, and give me a percentage on a 0 to 100 scale of how strong that emotion is. So I'd have to say, well, it's 50% strong as an emotion, and it's about 5% true. <laughs> and it forced me to calibrate the difference between what is real and what I'm feeling, and, and it taught me to appreciate how these things work together. And long before cognitive behavioral therapy was effective in our modern age, one of the most ancient scriptures in the entire Bible, the book of Job is among the oldest, tells us that God cares intimately about how we're feeling. And he says, start as a response to suffering with a foundation of worship and reverence, even if it's hard to do, and then from there, bring me everything you're feeling. You can tell me anything. This leads us to the third and kind of obvious point. No matter what happens in this life, keep God in the conversation. We don't know what coronavirus will do. Maybe it blows over. Maybe it kills 99% of the world. Who knows? Whatever happens, keep God in the conversation. And you will have an inner peace that no one else will have. Why? Well, for starters, I think Job understands that God is actually closer to you than family and friends. And he's more reliable. I mean, his own wife said, curse God and die. That'd be a tough marriage counseling session to step into. Okay, I validate your feelings, wife. And, jo and Job, oh, here's another piece of pottery to scrape the pus off your wound there. Hand sanitizer. Um, he gets it, and some of you get that. Some of you have had really good friends and really good family members, and they've really let you down, haven't they? Because people are flawed. And, and not least of which, because... We can't see what the world looks like perfectly from each other's eyes, but God can. God's the only person that will never get you wrong or misunderstand you. What a comfort that is. I heard an African-American preacher who just, I love his preaching because he just repeats those points, and he said, go to the throne instead of the phone. Before you go to the phone, go to the throne, brother. Go to the throne. I was really young at the time. I thought he meant toilet because that's what we called the, the throne in, in our uh, house growing up. I, I got it about halfway through, about the fifth or the sixth uh, iteration of go to the throne. Oh, he means the throne of God. Like talk to God before you call a friend. I totally get that now, and that makes kind of a little sense. It made sense a little bit as I was a kid. It makes a lot more sense now. But that's not our tendency. Our tendency is to talk to darn near anybody before we bring it to the one person who knows us and understands us and actually has the ability to change anything. And Job cries out to God in worship and in honesty and worship and honesty and worship and honesty and worship and honesty and it's a huge crescendo that builds into something actually quite beautiful, a deeper relationship with God. One of the fascinating things about the epistles, the letters that the Apostle Paul and other leaders in the early church write to these young churches in the Roman Empire who, go, who are going through 
tons of terrible things, just as bad as coronavirus or anything we're facing, and honestly, quite a bit worse if you, if you read through the first four centuries of the church. I mean, it's brutal stuff. I mean, the Black Plague and, you know, just terrible, terrible persecution where they would basically round up Christians and put them in coliseums and torture them to death. That was like their Super Bowl, and everyone cheered. And, and so they were really staring down the barrel of suffering that some of us can't even imagine. And even if we get close to that, we, it still won't top it. And what does Paul say in the beginning of those letters? We would think he would say, oh, just so you know, I'm praying that you don't get caught and round up and persecuted and tortured to death and, you know, torn apart by wild animals. Also, that you don't get succumbed to the Black Plague. And also, you know, that you would get a little more money because I know half of you are starving. He doesn't actually start that way. It's not that he doesn't pray for real physical needs at times, but his go-to is always I pray that you would get to know God in a deeper way. That as you go through this trial, wherever this trial came from, and we can't even fully explain whose fault it is or what, why God is allowing it, but, oh, I pray that this would become an opportunity for you to go deeper in your relationship with God, that you would get how much he loves you, that, that he has a plan for you, that ultimately all will be well no matter what you have to walk through, and you can trust him, and I pray that you would know him more. This should be a model and a message to us, the church in the year 2020, facing a global problem. It should tell us that even more important than the pain and the suffering is the opportunity. God can handle everything that you have to say and everything you feel. Let him. And lastly, Jesus is God's answer to Job's most honest objection. What was that most honest objection? We read a number of scriptures today, but the one that stuck out to me as Job's really got a point here came from Job 10, 2 through 7. Do you remember that one? You don't understand what it's like to be a human being, God. Don't talk to me about being faithful in persecution and how that might transform me and how good can come out of it because you don't get it. And this is a real thing. Uh, Serving in the military, I remember at the height of the Iraq war when you were stateside and you would shake somebody's hand like a new commander, they would just turn and they would look to see your combat patch. And if you had one, there was an instant bond. And if you didn't, there was a little suspicion. Why? Because nobody understands combat like somebody who's been in combat. And if you were molested as a child, nobody understands the pain that you went through than somebody who was molested as a child. And if you have lost a child due to tragedy, you're frankly not that interested in being comforted by someone who has 10 healthy kids. You're a little more interested in hanging out with somebody who has lost somebody. And we operate like this all the time because we kind of understand there are certain types of pain that unless you've walked a mile in my shoes, I don't really feel like you're going to comfort me to the depth that you could. And we see this played out in Job. He has his friends constantly trying to say nice things to him, and they're bumbling, and they're, they're trying to be helpful, but they're kind of making it worse. And it's as if Job is saying, you don't understand, friend one, friend two, and friend three, what it's like to lose 10 kids and all your wealth overnight, and your wife turns on you, and you've got boils and scabs, and people think it's your fault, like you have some sort of secret sin, and 
God is like punishing you. None of you get it, so quit trying to counsel me. And then he turns on God and he said, furthermore, God, you don't get it. I'm going to worship you and respect you and all that, but I really suspect you don't get it. And God says, yes, I do. In Christ, I do. Job is a good man who didn't deserve it, who suffered for a redemptive purpose that is mysterious and powerful. He is a prefiguration of Jesus Christ, God who would show up in the flesh and suffer, though he did not deserve it, for a redemptive, mysterious purpose. In many ways, Job's suffering, though he couldn't know it from his little perspective, was a salvation to hundreds of thousands that he would never meet, that he would not know about. You and I, namely, <laughs> we're talking about this. We're, we're given mattress handles to keep walking through the unknowns and the suffering. He's just pointing to a greater Job. He's pointing to Christ. And it's as if God says, you know, that's a good point. Far be it from me to be a God who always was and who never will have an end and who is perfect and does not struggle and does not have temptation and to sit idly on the sideline of the, of the athletic field and watch my children suffer in ways that they perceive I can't fully get. I suspect he could get them because he's God. But it's as if he's saying, just so you know with absolute clarity, I'm going to come as a perfect person who will never sin. And I will be misunderstood and ridiculed. I will be hungry. I will be cold. I won't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and that will cause a shiver of anxiety to run up my spine. And I will, in the end, be tortured to death and separated from the very source of myself, from my Father. Though I didn't deserve it, all to bring out a mysterious good result. One of those results, plural results, is that God gets it. And God has got this. I challenge you in the weeks to come, because we, we may not be meeting next week. If schools are closed, we might just go live stream. We'll take it week by week. There may be big instability in your life. Maybe your 401k was wiped out like that. Maybe your job situation or your childcare situation causes so much anxiety that even the fact that I just brought that up sent you into kind of a, a seizure. When anxiety starts to cripple you, when fear and worry and the pain and suffering that may surround this current moment, and it's just a moment, it will pass, but when that happens, maybe you might want to remind yourself, God gets it. And God, God's got this. He understands what we're going through, and that is such a comfort. And furthermore, he is still on the throne. Though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. This is my Father's will, lest I should forget. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, he is the ruler yet. Let's pray. God, thank you for the ability to gather and maybe it's one of the last times for a while that we will be able to gather in person. And, and as we gather online today, too, we thank you that you've given us these tools of technology to bridge distances. And maybe the most remarkable tool is, is the word of God that you've given us in ancient, ancient texts, the story of Job that speaks to us today and reminds us that we know how to suffer well. Others have done it before us, and, and with your help, we can do it again. 
and it will not be meaningless. You will bring good things out of it. And you may not have caused it, but you have allowed it. And in your allowance of it, you will limit it. We pray for your mercy, for your protection, of course, but even more, Lord, we pray that this would be a time where we would go deeper with you. May we get sick of Netflix and the news quicker, sooner than later. May our hiatus from professional sports give us a moment, Lord, to lean into our love relationship with you. Help us to wrestle with you in this suffering and pain, to, to worship and revere and respect and stand in awe and have a holy curiosity in your presence, but then bring you everything we're feeling, holding nothing back. And in the end, may we look back and say, the journey was worth it. All is well and all will be well in Jesus' name.